Well, Darren said, uh, welcome to our evening live stream. If it feels live to you, that is great. But we did record this a little bit earlier, and so I'm making fun of him right now because he makes fun of me, and that's the relationship we have, and we love one another. But to a more serious topic tonight, we go to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and we've been enjoying this series, just walking through chapters 18, 19, and we'll get to chapter 20 here shortly. To get our thinking going in John 19, and we'll be in verse 28 and following, I want to go to another familiar passage, and just to think this through, you don't have to turn there. Very familiar to us is Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You sinned an eternal weight of sin because you can't ever undo sin, you can't erase a thought, you can't undo a deed, you can't stop a word that has already been spoken. And certainly you can't undo those with replacement thoughts, words, and deeds. And because the omniscient memory of God is eternal, you can't just hope that with the passage of time, God will simply forget your sins. And so the only logical option for a holy God to take is to separate himself from the sinner and to have the sinner pay his own sin debt. But since sin is eternal, the debt will never be paid. When the murderer in hell has been there 10,000 years, his victim is still murdered. When the reviler who cursed those around him for a lifetime has been in hell for 100,000 years, those vicious, arrogant words have still been spoken. And when the adulterer has been in hell for a million years, he still violated his marriage. He still dishonored the God who made him. And so this brings us to a, a problem Because to have this price paid for you, then the payment must be of an eternal nature. It must be by someone who has no sin of his own to pay for and who can cover an eternal cost. And so sin must be atoned for by an eternal perfect being. And this, of course, narrows the field down to God himself. But we have to narrow the field even further. Since you're a human being... The, the correct exchange must be that of a human life for your life. That must be made. And therefore, this narrows the field not only to a perfect being who is God, but it must be God in human form, which of course speaks solely and only of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, He was speaking of the only possible truth that can save you. Now, I could end this message right now. This truth is self-evident. But rather than just having you believe me, asking you to believe what I say, I want to bring forward some, some other witnesses. Witnesses who would say that you must believe that the only option you have is Christ. And we find these witnesses in John 19, beginning in verse 28. Now, we've been walking through John 18, 19, and 20 in our series that we're calling The Glorious Gospel because in this narrative are are embedded, interwoven, the very truths of the good news of salvation. And we've summarized these truths into a gospel presentation. Here's what we have so far. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his Father's plan for his suffering. 
Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. Thus, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. For Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. But to be part of the kingdom, you must believe Christ suffered on your behalf. And Christ's suffering carried the sorrow of your sins. And tonight, we'll cover this statement. You must believe that Christ's death is your only option and hope of salvation. You must believe that Christ's death is your only option and hope of salvation. Now, other than the power of the gospel itself, Romans 1.16 tells us the, the power of the gospel. Other than the, the gospel itself, all throughout Christian history, the gospel is spread by the means of the personal testimonies of believers. That, that's how the gospel has been interwoven with our personal stories. Testimonies are powerful and they're, they're an undeniable tool because it, it moves beyond debating theological concepts into the realm of irrefutable evidence. And what's that irrefutable evidence? It is a changed life. Your changed life, my changed life, the changed life of every believer who's ever lived. John 15 verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is, in fact, where we get the term witnessing to speak of sharing the gospel. We are witnesses of the work of Christ in our own lives. And our text here gives us testimonies, witnesses of the truth of the gospel. And so I want to go down that path of these these witnesses, these testimonies. And so let's let our text this morning, this evening rather, bring forth We'll give you seven testimonies, seven witnesses that Christ's death is the only option, the only hope of salvation. The first testimony we'll call the testimony of David. The testimony of David. And we're going to camp on this one for a bit. We pick up our story. Jesus has been crucified. He's on the cross. Now, John's gospel doesn't record this part, but Christ has endured three hours of darkness during which the, the wrath of God has been poured out on him in an exchange that's so lofty, so terrible, so unfathomable that really it's inadequate to record it with mere words. All we have is the agony of Jesus at enduring the punishment for sin, finally crying out at the end of these three hours, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that brings us now to chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. He says, all is now finished. And this doesn't mean that every part of God's redemptive plan was completely done, but everything that brought Christ to this moment was exactly according to the Father's plan. Every minute detail working out perfectly, perfectly implemented, perfectly executed. And now Jesus, ever eager to please his Father and to carry out the plan perfectly, says, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And he's given sour wine on a sponge, cradled, sponge is cradled in this nest-like end of a hyssop branch. 
sour wine was the cheap wine used by soldiers. It was there for their refreshment. But this drink, uh, we shouldn't confuse it with the wine mixed with myrrh that just earlier was offered to Jesus on the way to the cross. Mark fifteen twenty three records this. That wine was different. The wine mixed with myrrh is a painkiller. It's meant to dull the agony. Jesus refused it so that he might drink instead from the cup of suffering given to him by his father. As a matter of fact, very much in contrast, taking this drink of sour wine would quench his thirst and therefore it would prolong the pain. It would protract the agony. The dehydration of crucifixion was part of the torture Blood loss and massive perspiration as part of the flogging alone would make his body desperate for water. But quenching his thirst isn't the primary motive here. He's acting in perfect obedience to his father. He's showing that his mind is so saturated in scripture, so much so that he understands the application of scripture to himself. And in this particular case, the application of a psalm of King David, his ancestor and the bearer of the Davidic covenant with God. Now, which psalm of David is Jesus referring to when he says, I thirst to fulfill the scripture? Well, some say he's referring to Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, which says, my tongue sticks to my jaws, speaking of great thirst. And this does have some merit to it because Psalm 22 has just been quoted in verse 24 here. They divided my garments among them. Others would say this is speaking of Psalm 42, verse 2, or Psalm 63, verse 1, very similar text. One says, my soul thirsts for God. The other says, my soul thirsts for you. But this is a spiritual thirst to be near God in worship in both those cases. And that would also force us to make verse 28 here in our text very symbolic, very metaphorical. It's not symbolic. Jesus is physically thirsty. And so our best option and the only one left to us is that Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me sour wine or vinegar to drink. Psalm 69 has already been cited two times in John's Gospel, in chapter 2 and in chapter 15. And of course, verse 29 here in our text is clearly a very specific description of Psalm 69, verse 21 in the sour wine detail. So why is Psalm 69 so important? Well, let's dive into it for just a moment and understand the the importance of this psalm in regard to Christ. Psalm 69 is basically the cry of of a vulnerable man, of a helpless man, of a man in pain. This is a man who's been slandered. David has been betrayed. Jesus fulfilled another part of Psalm 69 when he cleansed the temple of money changers and merchants the first time in John chapter 2. John 2.17 quotes Psalm 69 verse 9, familiar to us, zeal for your house has consumed me. And then in John 15 verse 25, Jesus applied Psalm 69 verse 4 to himself, they hated me without cause. What we have here is a classic example of typology. A a type in the Bible is a picture or a shadow of Christ in the Old Testament. And then Christ is what we call the antitype, the fulfillment as openly stated in the New Testament. But while David gives testimony through this prophetic psalm, the similarities quickly give way to the abyss, the the gap, the, the chasm, which exists between the flawed human type and the perfect divine antitype who is Christ 
We see these differences very clearly. Psalm 69 details David and Christ as a slandered and betrayed man, but the differences become very clear. In Psalm 69, verse 5, David confesses his sins, but Christ is without sin. In Psalm 69, 14, David prayed, Let me be delivered from my enemies, but, but Christ surrendered to his enemies. And in Psalm 69, 18, David prays to be redeemed and ransomed from his enemies, but Christ is the redemption. He is the ransom from our enemy, and that is sin. In Psalm 69, 28, David prayed, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Contrast that to our Lord Jesus, who prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. And so Jesus, infinitely better than the type He not only merely fulfills Scripture, he does so purposefully. This isn't an accident. This isn't a a blind coincidence here. He's actively obeying the Father's plan of redemption in every single detail. And yes, David's experiences form for us a, a prophetic model, a type of a greater David, Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, but Psalm 69 also bears witness to our desperate need for Christ. We have a desperate need for a Savior who is infinitely perfect and holy to save those who are infinitely imperfect and unholy. But not only did the sour wine fulfill Scripture, it did clear his throat. And this is important because it cleared the voice, cleared the throat of our Lord to make the most important proclamation in all of history. In fact, it's a proclamation that without it being made, you are going to hell. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This isn't a cry of defeat. This is a cry of victory. He didn't just say it, by the way. Mark 15 says it was a loud cry. It is finished. This is a powerful Greek verb, a perfect verb. Tetelestai. Tetelestai is a word that was written on a tax receipt. In our day, we would say it was stamped on there. And it means paid in full. It's finished. Jesus had accomplished all that the Father had sent him to do and had just finished drinking the cup of the infinite wrath of God for the three hours of darkness. Sin was atoned for. Satan was defeated and rendered powerless as the one who had the power of death. Every single requirement of God's righteous law had been satisfied and God's holy wrath against every single sin against those who would believe in him had been appeased, had been cleansed. And now a great exchange could take place And here's the exchange that when God looked at Christ on the cross, he saw you. He saw you in all your filth and sinful rebellion. He saw every secret sin, every disobedient, unruly, stubborn, defiant, disloyal, angry, treacherous, seditious, law-breaking, insolent act and thought and word you've ever said would ever commit against the pure and lovely and perfect and flawless and beautiful exquisite, eternal holiness of God. He saw Christ as you. 
And when Christ has made this atonement, now when God looks at you, he sees merely the unblemished, immaculate, spotless, pure, sinless character of his own son. And so Luke 23, 46 tells us when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And thus, to finish the payment here in John, he bowed his head and gave up, literally in Greek, handed over his spirit. And this is the great paradox of the gospel, isn't it? This is the paradox. By enduring a hellish pain, he conquered hell. By being made sin, he overcame sin. By submitting to the grave, he emptied the graves. And by suffering unto death, he defeated death. With a great testimony. We can see a second testimony. We'll call this one the testimony of a centurion. The testimony of a centurion. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Jesus was crucified on a Friday morning the day of Passover, and also the day of preparation for the Sabbath, which would begin at sunset. And the text says here, for that Sabbath was a high day. On this particular year, this Sabbath was also coinciding with the, the Feast of the First Fruits. And so it was, it was a, a very special Sabbath. Now, the usual practice of the Romans was to leave crucifixion victims on the cross until they died and to leave their bodies to be eaten by vultures. But if they wanted to quicken death, they would break the legs of the victim with an iron mallet. And this is a, a practice called the curifragium, and it means the breaking of the shin bones. So the, the shin bones would be shattered, and thereby the victim could no longer hold himself up with his legs, and he would asphyxiate in just a few minutes. But we always have to remember in these final chapters in particular, everything Everything the supposedly righteous Jewish leaders have been doing for the appearance of righteousness has always been for a secondary wicked motive, a hidden motive. And what's the motive? Well, to have the legs of Jesus broken, this would be a final sign to anyone watching that, that Jesus had indeed been accursed. He'd been abandoned by God. And so this act of breaking the legs requested by the Jews was not so much purity before the Sabbath, but to continue to make sure Jesus was fully humiliated. And so according to our text here, the soldiers started on the ends with the two men crucified on either side of Christ and they worked their way to the middle. And by the way, this means that the criminals on the cross, on either side of Christ, the crosses were still alive. And the one criminal who had come to saving faith would now die after his legs were broken, and he would see his Savior who had now gone before him. Now at this point, we want to kind of cut to a different camera angle. We, we want to get a different view in this drama and hear from an important witness, and that is the, the commander of these crucifixions. The centurion. He was a commander of a hundred. 
And he was overseeing these three executions. And we find him in Mark 15, verse 39, making a, a tremendous statement. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Truly expresses a deep, heartfelt conviction, something he now believes with all of his heart. And why did he say this? Well, we get a clue in the way that Jesus died. Jesus died precisely the opposite of the way crucified men die. The only noises a man near death and crucifixion can make are very quiet, desperate attempts to breathe as asphyxiation is now killing the body through lack of oxygen. But this centurion, he'd seen a lot of men die on crosses and never had one, not one time, had one been able to cry out with a loud voice at the moment of death. And, by the way, never had darkness come over the land for three hours. Some have said, well, it was an eclipse. The, the longest eclipses ever recorded last about six to seven minutes. So it can't be an eclipse. And, by the way, Matthew 27 tells us that, quote, the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened. The above ground tombs cut out of the rocks and hills would be damaged. They would be split apart. But interesting little note here. The next verse in Matthew 27 says that after the resurrection of Christ, many of the dead came out of these tombs. It was sort of like proof of the impact of the resurrection. And so the question is, did the earthquake and the resurrections happen at the death of Christ or at the resurrection of Christ? Well, Matthew's account in Matthew 27 links the events of the death and resurrection of Christ together because they are theologically bound. You can't have one without the other. But Matthew 27, 54 is very clear, says that the centurion, quote, saw the earthquake and he said, truly, this was the son of God. Then, three days later, the dead came out of the tombs. So, in other words, the earthquake happened at the death of Christ, and three days later, as Christ was resurrected, many others were resurrected as well. So, the question is, does this mean that centurion was saved? Well, you be the judge. Luke 23, 47 adds some more detail to what the centurion said. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. I'll give you a couple of things to think about here. First of all, he praised God. In the Gospels, it's pretty consistent, like 100% of the time, that unbelievers do not praise God. They cannot, by definition, give God true worship because they're unrepentant, and unrepentant people cannot worship. There's something else to consider. He declared the innocence of Christ. Certainly this man was innocent. This is a declaration of sinlessness. And we've already seen that he's declared the deity of Christ. And so I believe that what these texts, putting them all together, are telling us is that the pantheon of Roman gods, this man has been raised to believe in. Jupiter, the king of the gods, Neptune, Pluto, Apollo, Mars, Cupid, Saturn, Vulcan, Mercury, Bacchus, all of them died in his heart at that moment, relegated to non-existence and replaced by the one true living God, the only way of salvation, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, as he confessed with his mouth, Jesus as Lord. Tremendous testimony. 
Let me give you a third testimony. We'll call this one the testimony of a soldier. The testimony of a soldier. One of the men under the command of the centurion, we see in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. This wasn't just a little poke. This wasn't just a little jab to see if he was alive. This was a piercing all the way into the pericardium, the membrane which holds the heart, and the blood and the water coming out, very very, uh, very likely a sign that congestive heart failure was happening before Christ voluntarily gave up his spirit, this fluid buildup around the heart. But regardless of why the blood and water came out, and a lot of ink has been spilled over this, it doesn't matter why, there is one point, and that point is that Jesus was dead beyond a shadow of a doubt. He was dead. Now, we have to pause here for just a moment, and we need to highlight this little detail, especially since it's the Apostle John who's writing this detail to make sure we understand this. By the second century, a massive error had been introduced into the church called Gnosticism. It's from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the central idea of all forms of Gnosticism says basically that the key to saving truth lies in a hidden knowledge beyond what's revealed in the Bible. And according to Gnosticism now, salvation is a question of having that secret knowledge. Now, full-blown Gnosticism wasn't in full bloom until the second century, but much earlier than that, early variations of this particular error already threatened the church. And there were three major errors associated with Gnosticism. There was the error of dualism. Dualism says that everything in the universe is reduced to two basic realities. The, the spiritual things are good and the physical things are bad. There is the error of syncretism. Syncretism, it was the merging of two or more beliefs into one new belief. And in fact, this is most likely the heresy that the book of Colossians was written to fight. But then there was a third error associated with Gnosticism. And this is our concern right now. And that is the error of docetism. Docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. And this is the heresy that claims, ready for this, that Christ only appeared to be human. That he only seemed to come in the flesh. And so the docetism aspect of Gnosticism introduced now major Christological errors into the church, and which now leads us to completely question who Christ is. And if we question who Christ is, then, then our salvation is turned on its ear. As a matter of fact, there are three letters in our, in our New Testament devoted primarily to answering the heresy of docetism of a view of Christ which, in which he's not actually human. What do you think those three letters are? First, second, and third, take a wild guess, John. And John, writing this gospel as the last gospel, about 85 AD or so, his epistles are written just a few years later. John in this gospel is now already fighting against docetism. And this gospel account defends that Christ is the word of God made, what? Flesh. And that in his flesh he was crucified and died and out of his flesh flowed blood and water because if Christ didn't come in the flesh and if Christ didn't die in the flesh, he cannot be our substitute. 
And our salvation is a sham. And so we thank God for that one soldier. That one soldier ordained by God who proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he said he was. Now speaking of that soldier, remember we referred to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of this centurion, the commander of a hundred well, Matthew 27, 54 gives one more detail that I probably should mention. When the centurion, listen to this, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and took place, they, plural pronoun, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The other Gospels focus only on the centurion, but Matthew gives us the extra detail that the other soldiers confess Jesus as the Son of God. Now, this brings up an interesting question. Does this mean that you will see in heaven the very men who crucified Christ, the very men who drove the nails into his hands and into his feet? Well, put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of these men. As far as they're concerned, This is just another criminal. As far as they're concerned, they're just showing up for another day at work. But it seems that they formed the beginning of the answer to Jesus' prayer in Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is Jesus speaking of? The very next phrase refers to the soldiers. Talk about grace. I believe this text is telling us that someday you will meet the man who drove the nails into the wrists of Christ. That's grace. That's the testimony of a soldier. I mentioned the Apostle John and how important his work is against that heresy of docetism and Gnosticism. Speaking of John, let's make him our fourth testimony. The testimony of John. The testimony of John, verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness... His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, this witness is none other than John himself. This has been well established for many centuries now. We already know that he is at the cross because Jesus has spoken to him directly from the cross in verse 27. The eyewitness level of accuracy in John's gospel is affirmed in chapter 21, verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. But this verse here, verse 35, this is unique in all of John's gospel. It comes out of the blue, and it surprises us. There's a surprise here. All through John's gospel, He's been for us what we might call the tour guide of the ministry of Christ. He's been walking in front of us, narrating events from his eyewitness account. We remember that he introduces us to Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He shows us the drama of John the Baptist, the the herald of Christ's coming who identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. He takes us along as Jesus picks out his 12 disciples. John gives us a preview of great things to come when we show up in Cana at a wedding and we see Jesus turning water into wine. He points out the loyalty of Christ to his father when we watch Jesus violently cleanse the temple of money changers and merchants. 
And then we go into the darkness and we see the head teacher of all of Israel, Nicodemus, meeting Jesus at night to inquire, how can I be part of the kingdom? And Jesus tells him that he must be born again. And then we cut away once more to the preaching of John the Baptist as he clearly exalts Christ and points all listeners to Christ. And then John takes us on the road to Samaria. And on this road to Samaria, we listen to a very tender exchange between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well. She learns the way of salvation and she tells her whole village and they all come running and they come believing in Christ. And then Jesus takes us, John takes us rather back to the, the city of Cana. And in the city of Cana, we see Jesus heal an official son who was dying. And then back in Jerusalem, we see Jesus heal a paralyzed man. And then we get to see Jesus as he confronts and preaches to the leaders of Israel. And he closes with, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me for he spoke of me. And then we get curious because we see Jesus now on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we see literally tens of thousands of people showing up to hear him teach. And there's a problem. They're hungry. So Jesus miraculously feeds every single one of them. And then we're transported to the darkness and the damp of the Sea of Galilee in, in the strong wind and in the distance growing closer. We see something and John shows us it's Jesus. And he's walking on the water. Phenomenal. And then later, back in Jerusalem, we see the Feast of Tabernacles, which has important messianic features to it. And Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and he, he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And I confess, we probably cheer as John shows Jesus confronting the Pharisees once again, pronouncing a chilling curse on them when he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And again, we see Jesus confronting them saying, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus is shown by John to claim full deity. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. We're breathless as we see Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And this man now coming and following after Christ. And then John lets us hear the comforting sermon in which Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my own know me. And I lay down my life for them. And then our, our mouths drop open as Jesus appears at the mouth of a grave. And he goes to the grave, to the, to the death place of his friend Lazarus. And then resurrects him and brings him from the dead and we're moved when jesus uses this occasion to proclaim i am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and then we're mystified as we look down the road and we see jesus the king of israel coming into what people have called now the triumphal entry toward jerusalem but it falls flat because as we look, there's no throne, there's no crown, there's no glorious robe of a king. He gets nothing. And instead, now the plot against his life comes to a head. 
And then John takes us to an upper room. He takes us to a, a private meeting between Jesus and his disciples, the Last Supper. We see the tenderness and we see with awe that Jesus Christ gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet of his disciples. And then he preaches words of comfort and instruction to them. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then we're shown into the inner sanctum of the greatest prayer ever prayed, the John 17 great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And now John escorts us as our tour guide into the ministry of Christ. He escorts us into the Garden of Gethsemane late, late into the night. And we witness the arrest of Jesus. We witness Jesus facing Annas and then Caiaphas. And we hear Jesus proclaim, my kingdom is not of this world to his accusers. And we see with frustration Pontius Pilate trying time and time and again to to free Jesus. But the Jewish leaders would have nothing of it. And now Jesus is savagely flogged and we're looking on through the eyes of John and we're, we're in shock and we're in horror. He's condemned to die and we see the blood of Christ now flowing so freely and, and, and pieces of flesh coming off of his back. And we've seen him mocked as a king in this horrible crown of thorns and this old purple robe. We've seen him laid on his back and nails driven into his hands and driven into his feet. And We've seen the wrath of God fall on Christ as he cries out, it is finished. Now we've seen Jesus die. And to prove his death is real, we've seen as we wince, a soldier thrust his spear into the side of Jesus as blood and water flows out. And in all of this, John has been our tour guide. He's shown us everything. He's been our narrator. But now in verse 35, for the first time, he turns to you and me and says, I have shown you all this that you also may believe. First time in the whole gospel, he's talking to you. The point of this gospel is that you might receive Christ by faith to encourage and to promote Saving faith, that is the glorious testimony of John. Let me give you two more testimonies and we'll just do these briefly. The fifth testimony we'll call the testimony of David and Moses. The testimony of David and Moses. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This really compresses three different scripture passages David describes in Psalm 34, 20, how God cares for a righteous man. Quote, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That's David, and you put this together with Moses. Moses records God's command concerning the Passover lamb. Exodus 12, verse 46, you shall not break any of its bones. And then in Numbers 9, verse 12, Moses reiterates, you shall not break any of its bones. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the, of the shadow of the Passover lamb. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
And Peter said gloriously in 1 Peter 1.19 that we've been saved with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, David, 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, gives us an inspired text telling us that the bones of the righteous man will not be broken. And Moses, 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, tells us that even the symbol, the, the shadow, the type of Christ, the Passover lamb, would not have its bones broken. Why? Because that was the plan of God all along. Listen, those are two heavy-duty witnesses. David and Moses both giving testimony that Jesus is the righteous man who would be offered as the only and the sole substitute for sin. The sixth testimony, the testimony of Christ himself. The testimony of Christ himself. Verse 37, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, John here is citing Zechariah 12, verse 10, arguably one of the most important texts in all the Old Testament. Now, the greater context of Zechariah 12 concerns the defeat of the Gentile nations who have laid siege to Jerusalem in what Revelation 16 calls the Battle of Armageddon. So this has yet to happen. And around this time, at the end of what Jesus calls in Matthew 24, 21, the Great Tribulation, God will now open the eyes of Israel. And here is Zechariah 12, 10, what's quoted here in John 19. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Did you notice who's talking? When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. This is Christ himself promising to bring Israel to repentance and to faith in him. Now, John applies this text in an immediate way to those literally standing at the cross, seeing the pierced and crucified Jesus Christ. But as much Old Testament prophecy does, it represents a near and a far fulfillment. And the far fulfillment in Zechariah 12 concerns Israel weeping tears, not of despair, but tears of repentance, tears of contrition for their past sins, particularly because God the Son is now coming to rescue them from their enemies. But this looking on him whom they have pierced will include all of the earth, by the way, at the second coming. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And, and thus, all humanity will either wail and despair because the pierced one is coming, or they'll repent and rejoice because the pierced one is coming. Well, let me give you one more testimony. I, I said two more. Let's do a kind of a bonus testimony here. We'll call this one the testimony of John's readers. The testimony of John's readers. The original readers of this gospel. Because something would be triggered in the mind of these original readers by the quotation of Zechariah 12.10. How do we know this? Well, because the original readers were Jews. Well, let's put ourselves in the sandals of a Jew reading John's gospel or, or hearing it read in the late years of the first century. 
by now, Jerusalem has been destroyed in AD 70. The Jews are dispersed. Their nation is dead. As a people, they're no longer organized. There is no Israel. They're simply the people of Israel who are now scattered. John's gospel was written to them, to these dispersed ones, to the diaspora. This is a way for them to reconsider Jesus Christ, to reconsider the one who on the way to the cross said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Luke 23, predicting the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And by the way, that wasn't the first time he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. And so you have these Jews reading John's gospel. And these readers are very familiar with their Bibles. They're taught from early childhood, the law and the prophets. They've been reading in John chapter 10 that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. They've heard in John, Jesus openly condemning the shepherds, the leaders of Israel for their false faith and their wickedness. Jesus is identified in the gospel of John as the word of God, the word made flesh. They've been reading in John 16 that the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit will come to the believers in Christ and and did so at Pentecost. They read of Jesus, Hebrew Yeshua, and seen him intercede as the great high priest in his prayer of John 17. They've heard Jesus called the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, and Jesus himself saying that his kingdom is not of this world. And now they've heard this direct quote that they would immediately recognize as coming from Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10 in our Bibles. Now listen, the well-taught Jewish reader is already hearing Zechariah all over the Gospel of John. In John, Jesus portrays himself as the good shepherd, as we said a moment ago. But they would remember God's compassion in Zechariah 10, verse 2. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. In John, Jesus condemns the wicked shepherds of Israel that they will not see eternal life. But in Zechariah 10, verse 3, They would remember, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. In John, Jesus is the word of God. More than one time, every chapter in Zechariah, the Jews would remember, the word of the Lord. Listen to my words, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the Lord's gracious and comforting words, the word of the Lord of hosts. 18 times in Zechariah, the word of God is the centerpiece. In John, they would see the coming of the Holy Spirit to the believers. Zechariah 4, verse 6, Zechariah is encouraged that the temple of God would be rebuilt by God's help. How? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my, what? Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In John, Jesus Hebrew, Yeshua, the great high priest in Zechariah. The high priest in Jerusalem commissioned by God for his people is Joshua, Yeshua, which means Savior. In John, Jesus is the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, whose kingdom is not of this world. In Zechariah, they remember this great messianic promise in Zechariah 8, verse 3, that thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. They would remember Zechariah 14, 9, that the Lord will be king over all the earth. 
And they would definitely remember Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the Jewish reader would be saying, that that happened. Jesus just did that. That was him. And they would remember the very next verse. Zechariah 9, verse 10, promising that his kingdom would rule from sea to sea. That someday he's returning to rule over the whole world. And then, of course, in John, we see the scene of people looking on him who has been pierced. In Zechariah, now listen, listen, listen. In Zechariah 12.10, just reading Zechariah 12.10 by itself does not in and of itself identify Messiah. Just reading by itself, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. The Jewish reader would not see this as Messiah because there's nothing in there by itself that indicates Messiah. The Jewish reader would see this as God being pierced metaphorically in his heart at the disobedience of his people. But now this has been not changed, but enhanced to understand that this is applied to Christ in the inspired text of John's gospel. And the Jews seeing this see that Zechariah 12.10, oh, these are the words of Messiah. These are the words of Jesus, the words of the pierced one. So many testimonies. Jesus is the only option to receive eternal life. You've heard it from the lips of seven witnesses. The testimony of David, of a centurion, of a soldier, of John himself, of David and Moses, of Christ himself, and, and of the readers of John's gospel. Yes, as we said at the beginning, the wages of sin is death. But 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us that you have been bought. You've been bought with a price. Now, you may attempt to find any other way to God, but only Christ has purchased your freedom from sin and condemnation. And we receive a glorious promise given to all who have believed on the name of Jesus Christ as the only option to receive eternal life. Here is the glorious promise, Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Listen, God in his sovereign plan, in his total control over the earth, he's given humanity a wake-up call. As we're walking through this coronavirus crisis, this is a wake-up call to all humanity as we're watching the news and seeing death tolls rise by the minute now. All humanity is now confronted with the fact that they must face death. They must understand that they will stand before God. And there is only one hope to stand before God, and that hope is to know that Jesus Christ alone is your hope of salvation, that He alone has paid the penalty for your sin. If the witness of the current crisis isn't enough for you, if me, a little preacher, telling you isn't enough for you, at least believe the Word of God. At least believe 
David, a centurion, a soldier, John, David, and Moses, Christ himself, and all the readers of John's gospel, believe them and come to faith in Christ so that, as the Bible says, death will have no fear anymore, no sting at all, because now you're in him. He is the only option. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and we come to you now thanking you for this Lord's Day and the Word of God, which as we just open our Bibles, it just comes alive and leaps to life in our hearts. I thank you for all who have heard this message, and I would pray, Lord, for a man or a woman who has not come to faith and who has ignored the gospel, ignored the witnesses placed before them, that now they would listen. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open the eyes the spiritual eyes of the blind, you would open the spiritual ears of the deaf to hear the good words of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they would come by faith to repent and to ask for mercy and to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. For He is the only way, He is the only truth, and He is the only life. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I do want to thank you for tuning into this time in Grace Bible Church. I want to remind you Wednesday evening, uh, we'll have another uh, hymn sing that will be live streamed and we'll look forward to that. And then Friday evening, Good Friday, we will have a live stream Good Friday service at 6.30 p.m. And, and be preparing your hearts for that as well. Lord bless you and we'll see you Wednesday evening at the hymn sing and Friday evening at our Good Friday service. Lord bless all of you.